Here's what's coming up in the Jeff MacArthur podcast for Wednesday, September 2nd. The Ontario government ramping up cannabis store approvals. We learned that pandemic grocery overbuying is costing Canadians thousands in food waste. And leaders continue to issue warnings about mental health issues surging over COVID-19 concerns. All of that coming up right now on the Jeff MacArthur podcast. Of course, a lot of people thought, well, they thought that uh, cannabis was going to be their ticket to wealth. Now, that, of course, has not necessarily been the golden ticket that many thought it might be. And the Ontario government now said to ramp up cannabis store approvals. And for more on this, we are joined now by Mitchell Osak, who is a cannabis expert with the accounting firm MNP. And he joins us now here on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Mitchell, good afternoon. Nice to have you back on. Thank you, Jeff. Pleasure to be on the call. Okay, there's 150 pot shops currently open in this province, but the government says they want to double that number. Just exactly how are things changing? Well, currently, uh, the AGCO, the Alcohol Gaming Commission of Ontario, has been authorizing 20 stores per month. They're they're, um, anticipating to be able to double that, either beginning September or October of this year, to go up to 40 stores per month. So this is a very positive change. Uh, for the Ontario cannabis market, but we still have a ways to go in Ontario before we get anywhere near the numbers in some of the other provinces in Canada. Okay, why do you see this as a positive, a positive change? Uh, Because for for three things, three primary reasons. One is that Ontario residents are going to have significantly more access to legal cannabis going forward than they do currently right now, and that is going to be a boon for everybody and particularly the government's objective of, um, of um, eliminating the black market. Number two is that there is a lot of supply in the, legal supply in the market right now that's being held up because of a lack of retail distribution in Ontario and Quebec as well. And now all of that product will have an outlet to market. Number three is that we're going to improve the level of convenience and choice for Canadian consumers, and particularly in Ontario, particularly in outlying regions where people have to drive, in some cases, hours to get to a legal uh, cannabis store. Now they'll have those stores much closer to their um, home. Yeah. Has the problem, though, when it comes to cannabis sales, Mitchell, in this province, has the problem been access, that there's not enough stores, or has the problem been price? Because that's what you hear a lot, that uh, the price just isn't competitive. Well, um, I call it the, the problem of the four horsemen. So access is obviously a critical one. The second critical one is price, and there's still a significant gap between the cost of legal cannabis as purchased through a legal outlet and what you can buy on the black market. Number three, though, uh, importantly, is also the quality of the cannabis products that you can buy legally versus the black market, and in some cases, the quality is not there yet. And number four, it's the nature of the products themselves. All four of these things are steadily improving, but it's going to take some time. Yeah. What about uh, the restrictions on growing, home, uh, home growing? Because currently now it's uh, four plants. Does that factor into this at all when it comes to uh, cannabis sales? I know there's a challenge uh, right now, a legal challenge uh, against the uh, federal government uh, about the, the restrictions that you should be able to, or at least some people feel as if you should be able to grow more than just four plants, that it seems like it's kind of an arbitrary number. Yeah, I think, I mean, I wasn't uh, working in Health Canada when they came up with the 
the number of four. But I think that there's much ado about nothing when it comes to this issue. Most consumers, the vast majority of consumers, want to buy legal cannabis through a, uh, a black market dealer that they're familiar with or through a legal outlet. Very few people, and I would say at maximum 5 to 10% of the population, want to grow it themselves um, for a variety of reasons. One is that it's not necessarily easy to grow. And number two, it takes a lot of energy and, and skill and so on and so forth to be able to do that. So, yes, there are some people who are not happy about that situation, but the vast majority of the market, like anybody, wants to go to a store and buy their, their regulated product, just like we would go out and buy our tomatoes and, and our bread. We don't want to bake it ourselves. Gotcha. Now, the Ontario government, again, says they're set to ramp up approvals. Is this an admission that maybe they weren't doing things right, that the system was flawed, that it had to change? As you mentioned, Ontario is lagging behind several other provinces when it comes to pot shops. Um, I'm not sure that's what they would say. Um, I think uh, there wasn't a, there's no question that our pace of approvals was very slow, um, very cumbersome, and it zigged and zagged. If we start back with the uh, Liberal government under, under the Wynn administration, and then they wanted to have a purely public sector model, we've, we've pivoted many times in Ontario. So I think it's a more than a welcome admission to them that they can do more and they ought to do more. The challenge I have with it is that even with 40 store approvals per month, that's roughly 480 approvals per year. Ontario can, can handle, according to our, our math, up to 1,500 stores. So even if we're increasing by 480 per year, and and that's based on a base right now of 142 stores, it's going to take us a few years to get to our maximum capacity. I don't think that's enough. All right. Having said that, and you mentioned the wind government a second ago, moment ago, they did have a public model in mind. And I guess hindsight's always 2020. But would we have been further off? Would Ontario have been better off with pot? I'd say the LCBO. Absolutely not. Um, we have a great comparable in Canada where you have a public sector model, and that's in Quebec. The, the SQDC, um, which is the Quebec um, organization that runs cannabis in that province, has only opened to date 45 stores. 45 stores represents less than one store per 100,000 residents. So if you look at it from a scalability standpoint, the pure public model hasn't delivered the goods when it comes to retail access. When you compare that to like Alberta, which is a pure private sector model and a model very similar, similar to what we have in Ontario, they have 11.7 stores per 100,000 residents, and that equates to 515 stores. So the private sector model is the best way to guarantee high access and rapid onset. We just got to get on the horse and start galloping a little faster. <laughs> All right. Well, if they are going to gallop a little faster and ramp up store approvals, does the Ontario government, do they have to be careful who they're giving those approvals to? Because as we know, the narrative early on was this lottery system and people were putting their names in, again, thinking this was a golden ticket and was going to uh, be their path to a riches, owning a pot shop. But some of these retailers couldn't open on time, couldn't open at all. Do they have to do their due diligence as to who they're giving these approvals to? If indeed at the end of this all, we want to see more pot shops, more pot stores? 
Yeah, absolutely. Nobody says throw the regulations to the wind and, and give this to anybody. Certainly not the industry, it's the legal industry itself. So we believe, and, and so does a lot of the industry, that you can still have strict regulation, proper due diligence around who's getting these stores, and rapid um, approvals of these stores. So those two objectives do not contradict and can easily go hand in hand. We've seen that in provinces like Alberta. We're seeing it now in British Columbia. We've seen it in Saskatchewan. So they're not mutually exclusive. We just believe that in the interests of a healthy industry, cannabis retail industry, as well as satisfying public sector um, objectives like health and safety and security, that we need to move in concert with all levels of government supporting the same thing, which is, you know, proper access, healthy industry, healthy citizens. And there's no reason why we can't do that with enough uh, of a vision and enough resources and enough ambition. I mean, Ontario is lagging the rest of the country. And uh, for the sake of our own population and eliminating the black market, which is one of the primary objectives, we ought to, for those public policy reasons, um, get moving. All right, Mitchell, appreciate the time as always. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Jeff. Take care. You as well. Mitchell Osak is a cannabis expert with the accounting firm MNP. Next to a growing concern over an often overlooked consequence of the pandemic, a new survey says that Canadian households are actually throwing out more food since the pandemic began. Lori Nichols, the CEO of Second Harvest, and she joins me now here on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Lori, good afternoon. Hi, Jeff. How are you today? I'm well, thank you. Appreciate your time. This Adele Housie study says that we are actually throwing out 13.5% more food. Can you kind of quantify that for us? Sure. So the Dalhousie study was actually based off of our original study of the avoidable crisis of food waste. So pre-COVID, we were wasting just over $1,700 per household of food. And as a result of retail and food service essentially stopping, uh, families and individuals were forced to cook at home. And not everybody has the skills uh, necessary to cook. And so I think there was a lot of learning. There was a lot of overbuying uh, because there was some fear about our food supply chain, which is intact. And I don't think people were realizing that this was contributing to food loss and waste, and which ultimately contributes to climate change. Right. Okay. And I mean, this is, sorry, about like $2,000 worth of food we're throwing away or roughly five pounds of food. Yep, that's about right. And so it is more than uh, pre-COVID, but we it wasn't too much less, you know, pre-COVID with 1,700. And, and that's because there's a lot of misinformation about food. And so if people would like to learn more about how to reduce your food waste, please do go to the secondharvest.ca website because we have all kinds of tools and uh, education to teach you how to uh, waste less at home. Um, I would say one of the biggest challenges people have, and, and myself prior to the second harvest too, is best before dates. They do not mean bad after. They're they're not um, safety approved. There's only five foods that expire in Canada, and so those foods you should throw away. But the rest are just kind of manufacturers. Um, best guess, and it's conservative. You know, this is a little ironic, because next hour we're going to talk to the host of a, a new show where he eats old food. Uh, th- this is a thing. It's, it's a show. He eats what he calls food artifacts, and we're going to debate best before dates, whether or not they're just, uh, 
you know, a suggestion or they're a hard and fast uh, rule. But uh, you're saying, uh, I don't know, have a look at the food uh, first before you just pitch it, just because there's a date printed on the uh, bottle. The label doesn't necessarily mean it's bad. It, it doesn't mean it's bad at all. So, and this, this isn't second harvest. This is um, Canadian food inspection rules. So the, there's five foods that actually expire, and they're all based on the nutrients that are in them. So baby formula. You shouldn't give to your baby after the expiry date because the nutrients are less and they need more calories. Ensure for seniors, those kind of meal supplements. Two are by prescription only, and uh, the third one or the fifth one is um, like protein bars. And, again, it's about the nutrients that your body needs and is expecting from that type of food. The rest are best before, they're conservative, they're manufacturer-driven. So absolutely, I, I shouldn't say disregard, once it's open, but use your common sense and use your senses. Don't just throw something away because the date that's been printed on it. Yeah, do you think that this is happening? Again, 13.5% uh, worth of food is being thrown out now since the pandemic by Canadian households. Is this happening as a result of some panic buying, do you believe, uh, Laurie? And we saw that certainly early on in the pandemic, where people were, as uh, you said a second ago, worried about the food supply and the food chain. And do we need to maybe just take a step back, take a breath, and sort of realize that, uh, listen, our food supply is uh, okay, we don't need to overbuy? Absolutely. And I think people are seeing that now. Like we are noticing the grocery stores are stocked and they have been for several months. It was just a moment in time where there's, everybody was worried our food supply chain was broken. It wasn't. And so the panic buying certainly had contributed to um, excess buying and throwing more food away. But I also think it's just a lack of food literacy that we have as Canadians, right? Like we don't all cook like our grandparents and great-grandparents did. And so learning new things and purchasing items in bulk when you're not going to use bulk, or if there's only one person in the family or two persons in the family, sometimes the food that you're purchasing is too much. And that's got nothing to do with the, the consumer. That has to do with the way it's been packaged. And so you're stuck with this, and what are you going to do? What would I say? Freeze it. <laughs> Freeze anything. And then use it later. So just because you have it in your fridge, if you're not going to use it, just throw it in the freezer. Food lasts for a long, long time. Yeah, that is a great tip. I also find, and I do a lot of this particularly on Sundays, is batch cooking. Like I'll cook mm -hmm. a bunch, I'll get my ingredients and I'll cook a bunch of stuff that gets me through to kind of Wednesday or Thursday. And then I'll cook again for the next uh, few days. That way you're kind of planning ahead. Exactly. Planning ahead is brilliant. And, I mean, the old adage of don't shop when you're hungry is absolutely right. Don't shop when you're hungry. <laughs> Have a list. Use your list. Recognize that, you know, sometimes your, your life is going to change. And so buy less. Just simply buy less because you're always going to find that there's extra food. So you're also saving money if you buy less because life happens. And one day you're going to order in. And you might not think it, but it happens. So just buy less. Save yourself some money. Save the planet by wasting less food. Yeah, and listen, there's nothing for me more heartbreaking, more devastating, quite honestly, than having to throw out what was good food just because you're absolutely right. You didn't plan ahead. You overbought. And is this adding, is it adding to the problem of food security right now? Well, I think there's, there are two very different problems. One is food loss and waste. And although, yes, um, households are, are wasting more food, um, hospitality, the hotel, restaurant, and um, 
in food service sectors are actually not. So this may be balancing out regardless of the food loss and waste. But we have a big problem with that across the country pre-COVID. We have it in COVID. We're hoping to do things post-COVID. Um, but food insecurity really has not much to do with food. It's really about income. So people should have a basic income uh, that they can purchase their own food. Or food security is about mental health and housing. So we can provide people food, and that's what we do at Second Harvest. And there's, there's more than enough food to feed everybody in the world. But that won't solve the problem of food insecurity or poverty. That will just support a person with, uh, with a hunger need in that moment. All right. Lori Nichols, some uh, great words and some uh, great advice. As, uh, I think we can all kind of take a look in the mirror, examine ourselves and our habits and our shopping, and uh, make sure that uh, we're buying enough, but just enough, not uh, overbuying when it comes to food. Because, again, there really is nothing more heartbreaking than having to throw away what was good food. Lori uh, Nichols from uh, Second Harvest. Lori, thanks again. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Now, when it comes to the pandemic, there's certainly concern over back to school and a possible second wave. There's also been lots of debate over whether or not we are ready for either of them. And there's also concern when it comes to dealing with mental health in COVID. Michael Lochran is the Director of Operations for Renaissance, and he joins us here now to discuss on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Michael, good afternoon. Hi, Jeff. How are you? I'm well, thanks. Appreciate your time. Uh, There's no doubt the pandemic has affected our uh, mental along with our physical health. Just exactly how have we done as a collective, as society, in dealing with that challenge? Are we dealing with it effectively? Well, I think we're dealing with the pandemic very effectively. I I don't even think, you know, I know that we actually haven't seen the full impact on mental health and substance use. Uh, What we're watching right now is a a crisis in addiction and mental health developing kind of in real time in front of our eyes. And uh, I don't know that we're fully prepared for it. I I do know that organizations like Renaissance and our partners and Addiction Mental Health Ontario, our association, has been uh, preparing diligently for it, but I, I think that we need absolutely more focus and we need absolutely more resources uh, in order to be able to deal with it. it it's a crisis that's going to last uh, for years. Now, can you give us any idea of numbers? Have you seen an influx and increase? We are. So the the numbers part of that is difficult because uh, distancing means that our capacity across the organization, across the field, has been greatly limited. Uh, And it's been widened quite a bit, uh, closer to what it normally would have been before uh, COVID struck. So the the demand is partially the limit in capacity, uh, but the the other part of that is that those who are experiencing trauma because of uh, the pandemic and those who are experiencing anxiety and depression uh, are really either just starting to experience it because uh, they're coming out of uh, kind of a coping and just survival standpoints. And it, there's normally a lag process where uh, the amount that you've been drinking, the amount that you've been using starts to cause you consequences, and then you start to realize it's a problem, uh, or you start to realize that your anxiety is a problem uh, and is impacting your life. But we are already actually seeing people at Renaissance in our programs who are telling us that, you know, I would not have been here had it not been for COVID or Mm -hmm. had it not been for the isolation. That 
is very fast. That's far faster than we normally see. Normally, uh, the development of addiction and the development of uh, painful mental health uh, issues and complications takes quite a great deal of time, and it's a slow process. And what the pandemic has done is crashed many Canadians through that process very quickly. Yeah, I was uh, just kind of wondering about this myself, because when it comes to COVID, I mean, the virus itself, you know, it can inflict on people physically, right? And I think the case levels at, what, 127,000 and growing, you know, day by day. Mm -hmm. Uh, But you can limit your exposure to that by doing a number of things that we've talked about for, for months now. But when it comes to people's mental health, I'm wondering if we're giving it due diligence and giving it enough weight, uh, Michael, because, I mean, mentally, I mean, this pandemic can uh, affect you in ways that it can't physically, right? I mean, you're just thinking about maybe going outside. Does that cause anxiety? Uh, you know, sending your kids back to school, is that also causing some uh, mental language? So there's just so many ways that this pandemic can affect you mentally. Yeah, absolutely. It's incredibly impactful. The measures that we put in place in order to control the pandemic also have the uh, unintended side consequence of affecting people as well in their mental health. And then actually, as we're reopening, we're seeing that as well. So, and in substance use, often what that means is that as people went into lockdown or started working virtually or started not working at all, they were experiencing the crisis and then probably started to use a little more than they normally would have, started to to experience anxiety, started to experience fear. And then as we start to reopen, that really starts to present itself. As people start to go back to work, but they have actually increased their drinking to a point where it impacts on their ability to work. They, the other part of it is that just the, the isolation itself, that's a normal stage of the development of uh, anxiety, development of depression, the development of substance uh, addiction, and it, we kind of crashed into that. And a lot of people haven't even begun to realize the impact that that's had on their lives yet. Yeah, it's really a story to interrupt, but a double-edged sword, isn't it? I mean, as we're sitting here talking about this, uh, you were told to quarantine and to uh, isolate, and that uh, can cause, of course, uh, problems with mental health when you're detached and uh, if you don't have anybody to, to lean on and you feel isolated and alone. Yet, on the other hand, when you go out, you also can experience, uh, you know, some mental health problems and anxiety about uh, being amongst people uh, once again. It's almost like you can't win. Yeah, it's a double-edged sword. It definitely is kind of a perfect storm for mental health uh interruptions and for lasting addiction. Uh, However, it's also an opportunity. Uh, For instance, at Renaissance, we've revolutionized the way that we develop care. We've always been an inpatient residential addiction provider, and very quickly we transformed to also providing virtual care in people's homes, and that's something that we hadn't even considered before this. Uh, However, it's also an opportunity for us to look at the way that we take care of the people most in need in our communities, because the people who are going to be the most affected by this are people who have already experienced trauma, who already have problematic substance use, uh, who are already struggling with anxiety or depression, uh, or have had these things in the past, uh, as well as those who experience systemic racism or precarious housing or are working kind of shift works and closer to the poverty line. So the I think this is an opportunity for us to reevaluate because, you know, our resources were stretched pretty thin in providing addiction treatment 
prior to COVID. And right now, we're, we're watching uh, a wave of addiction come through our society. And it's been, it's been absolutely impressive the way that Ontarians and Canadians have approached COVID and the measures that we've put in place in order to protect ourselves from this pandemic. And my hope is that we are now going to look at the, the coming crisis in mental health and addiction in the same way and put the same vigor into uh, protecting those who most need it. And as you put it, the coming crisis, because it's something that's happening right now, but it is going to, it looks like anyway, sadly, grow and continue. This is going to be a long-term battle. So having said that, how should practitioners, uh, governments, uh, how should they be responding? Uh, I think, you know, additional resources, creative use of the resources we have, uh, and integration. So the, the addiction field in particular has come together in sharing information. Uh, many of us have developed virtual care models. The government has been behind that. Uh, but integrating those so that we're not, it's not one or the other. It's not that we can now provide a virtual care model to somebody in need and not need to provide them with traditional means of counseling. It, and that necessitates an increase in resources. And we can actually creatively use those together so that it's not one or the other, but we're using both of them. And I think awareness across our social services and our educational services for the warning signs, because addiction and mental health uh, issues actually disguise themselves because of our ability to adapt. We talk about a new normal, and for somebody who whose drug use is increasing, it in, each time it increases, they go to a new normal. And that means that it can be difficult to uh, identify people who are struggling. It, and when you compound that with the still existing stigma against people who are struggling with addiction or the, the self-stigma of somebody who is considering that they should be able to take care of this anxiety on their own, then it becomes difficult to identify. So, so training those people that are going to come in contact and increasing the amount of services that we have so that we can get people in. Like I said, our resources were stretched pretty thin prior to COVID. And uh, we do need to scale up the resources available. And, and I think us as a society, we need to take a look at how we're going to take care of people who are experiencing this. Because unfortunately, uh, addiction and uh, anxiety and depression and trauma, they increase your likelihood of experiencing that again. And they are pretty persistent conditions in, in that they remain until a solution is found. Michael? Goes without saying, an important conversation, and I really appreciate you taking some time out with us this afternoon. Thanks so much. Yeah, of course. Thank you. Goes Michael Lockren, who's the Director of Operations for Renaissance. And that's the Jeff MacArthur Podcast for Wednesday, September the 2nd. Thanks so much for listening. Don't forget, you can listen live weekdays between 1 and 3 on Global News Radio, 640 Toronto.